morning all and welcome to our latest in the know podcast where i'm joined today by john cunliffe who is chief investment officer at charles stanley who are one of a number of different investment managers that we use welcome john thank you very much for joining us this morning yeah morning thanks for inviting me on no it's our, it's our pleasure um john i'm gonna i was in preparation for for this conversation this morning i've obviously had a quick look at your um, CV um, on the uh, Charles Stanley website and I noticed that you spent some time with Tesco um, in charge of their fixed income and um, pension side of it. Is that is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, um, Tesco Pensions Investment was set up to bring uh, as much as possible the externally managed assets in-house to streamline right. the asset allocation and also to um, you know, lower costs so okay. it, was a, it was a very effective way of doing that. And I was responsible for, for two key areas. One was setting up an in-house fixed income capability. Um, you know, so we were, we were resting largely in the sort of global aggregate universe. And the other was the, um, the asset allocation piece at total scheme level. Right. OK, well, that's it's very timely then that we're talking to you because uh, the last what few months or so, we've seen some quite interesting movements in the fixed interest markets, haven't we? Um, with possibility of increasing yields. And then we had um, the Fed um, last week talking about um, concern about overheating in the US economy. Do you think that investors take enough notice of what's going on in the fixed interest markets? Uh, I mean, as someone that spent time at the start of his career at the Bank of England, and I was a, a government bond dealer for them, I think, I think people find bonds inherently dull um, it's very yeah. hard to create an exciting narrative around bonds, you know, whereas mm -hmm. if you're talking about um, equities, there's always an investment thesis, there's a narrative there. It just feels a bit more alive, I think. But mm -hmm. of course, we're in a world where, you know, low bond yields over recent years have been a key underpinning of elevated equity valuations. Yes. Um, so the extent to which, you know, bond yields could or, or should rise further, I think is certainly something that investors should have some focus on, um, you know, and I think at the moment the, the, the argument is that bond yields should rise a bit further because global growth momentum is extremely strong um, and inflation is, is poised to rise. And I think in the short term that might be correct, but we do see um, the risk of an inflection point around mid-year in terms of growth momentum, which could cause bond yields to settle back into a, into a more normal sort of environment of, of being slightly better behaved. Um, but yeah, if you, as an equity investor or a market participant more broadly, if you um, ignore bond yields, you are ignoring one of the key drivers of, of asset performance, because at the end of the day, bonds are a barometer of the price of money and the price of money should determine really um, how you allocate your capital. Yeah, there's, a, there's an awful lot of um, source of information out there, that, that, but so the bond market globally is far bigger than the global stock market. Is that, is that right? Would that be your understanding as well? Yes, it probably is. Um, and it's been a lot bigger over the last um, year or so, reflecting huge amounts of issuance to finance uh, government deficit. Yes. Um, and I think yeah. one of the reasons why I think people have got nervous about bonds is is really because you've got strongly pro-cyclical policy stimulus with both interest rates um, and also the QE program that central banks are, are pursuing via their bond buying and also fiscal policy all very aligned. 
And of course, that's given rise to concerns that we could be overheating, particularly in the US. But of course, the US wants to run the economy hot to try and tempt semi-attached or detached workers back into the labour market. So that's really the, 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 the dynamic there. You know, if you, if you run the economy hotter for longer, you actually do improve the prospects for longer term sustainable growth because more people feel, um, you know, obliged and able to, to rejoin the labour market. And, and of course, that increases the dynamism of the economy. But of course, yeah. for the first time in many years, we are seeing the, the return, if you like, of the, the spectre of inflation. Certainly expectations around inflation have been rising, uh, really reflecting last year's very weak base effects that pushes up the year on year measure, but also bottlenecks um, and um, supply shortages. And we're seeing that both in terms of the labour market, also commodities um, and raw materials as well more broadly. And I think that's going to feed through into into higher inflation. But I think central banks are quite keen to look through this. What they don't want to do is, is take the punch bowl away from the party too soon and, and preside over a, a more significant deceleration in activities we go into the next year. Yeah, this, this inflation question is one that seems to be causing quite a little bit of concern amongst a lot of people. There are differing views on this. The view that there is inflation that has been, if you like, stacked up in the system because of what's yep. been going on over the last few last few years. And the other view that says, well, in actual fact, inflation is not a bad thing because if you inflate your way out of the debt position, that's not too bad a thing to consider. Well, yeah, and I, think, I think inflation was largely missing in action, really, from 2012 um, and beyond. And that was really because you had a combination of, of tight fiscal and easy money. So, yes. you know, governments were, were driving with one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the pedal. Um, yeah. I think now, because we've got some monetary and fiscal policy more closely aligned in a pro-cyclical way, that's given rise to more fears around higher inflation. But I think yeah. we're still in a world where you've got um, tech, which I think is, is a disinflationary pull in terms of the, uh, the secular outlook. Um, and I think you also need to recognise that whilst we will see supply shortages um, and bottlenecks, which will cyclically push up inflation, um, it's it's very hard to see a sustained rise in inflation sort of next year and the year after unless we see tightness in the labour market, which gives rise to wage push inflation. So really, we do need to see all these discouraged workers come back into the labour force and, um, you know, labour market conditions to tighten and then that to feed through into sustainably higher uh, wage settlements. So we're not quite there yet. But I think the key, the key shift, I think, on the part of what central banks have been signalling is that in the past, they were always very much guided by the forecast. You know, where, where do they forecast yeah. growth, inflation, you know, the labour market, uh, the economy more broadly? Now it's very much more outcome based. Yes. So they'll, they'll wait to see confirmation before they act, which, which has given the market a little bit of fear that maybe central banks could be behind the curve a little bit. And that's yeah. why U.S. yield curve has been steepening up a little bit. Um, and we've got this general reflation view um, and fears that, that perhaps the Fed might be a bit slow to react should inflation turn out to be more of a sustainable problem. But I think that's very much, uh, you know, an issue for later this year. I think for the time being, although the employment report on Friday in the U.S. was was a bit mixed, um, I, I still think it gives the Fed cover to stay dovish for a bit longer. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the that's the general view. You know, this higher inflation, higher growth environment, 
does align with um, with strong profits growth. Yes. Um, and of course, the pricing power we're seeing coming in does boost margins and, and boost the bottom line as well. So so it's a it's a reasonably constructive view, I think, but it's still very much front loaded on the basis that we feel it's probably better to travel than to arrive when it comes to uh, financial market outcomes. Yeah. It's very interesting you talk there about labour demand and, and potential increase in wages, etc. But I'm sure I read over the weekend a comment, I think, which was attributed to the Volkswagen um, chairman or chief executive or something. And I didn't realise this, but Volkswagen are apparently one of the Europe's largest employers. And he was saying that he did not see yet any significant movement for under wage pressure. So I think I think from that point of view, that's probably not going to come through in inflation for a little while longer. But anyway, let's move on a little bit from there. But um, I think the last 12, 15 months, pandemic, post-pandemic, whatever it happens to be, have been quite interesting for all of us involved in the investment world. Um, the markets dropped dramatically last March. We covered really strongly. And most forecasters are expecting the markets to continue to go to, to recover. Do you think perhaps we've seen the best of that? I think we've seen quite a lot of it. Um, you, know, you know, if you say that a typical balanced portfolio with, with equities, bonds, a bit of property in there and alternatives would, would give you around or has given you around a 7 8% return in recent years, which is really good. Mm. Um, you know, and it obviously reflects the legacy of low bond yields or falling bond yields. I think, the, I think we're probably talking about 7 8% this year as well. Now, typically, now, a balanced portfolio year to date would have given you around five, maybe five and a half. So mm -hmm. I think we probably have seen um, a lot of the returns because I think as we go through the year, the markets will either worry that we're seeing the economy too hot and that the Fed may remove policy accommodation a bit more rapidly. And that could be a, a headwind or we might see an inflection point in terms of growth. And again, that could take the edge off um, some of this enthusiasm for the reflation trade. So so we expect, you know, further positive returns. But once we get into the summertime, I think most of it's behind us because I do think markets are increasingly embracing a, a pretty good outcome here. Um, and we've seen some very strong performance um, on the back of the good vaccine news we had in November and some very, very strong performance from beaten up sectors, which may still be challenged um, by the environment we've got ahead of us because we're still some way from a more normal return to economic activity. You, you mentioned the, the you mentioned sectors there, John, which I, I think is quite interesting because I've got a, a forming view that because of the pandemic, because of what we've seen, sectors that have driven returns in the past may not necessarily be the same sectors that will drive returns in the future. Do you think that's a valid view? It's been it's been mixed. I mean, certainly going going into November last year, or certainly for the first six, seven months um, after the uh, the initial sell-off in, in equities in, in March that you highlight. Mm. So-called secular growth stocks were doing pretty well. Stay-at-home stocks were doing well. Big tech was doing extremely well. Um, and then when we had the uh, the announcement of, of three um, effective vaccines that were um, signaled, I think, in the second week of November, we had a, a big rotation into cyclical and value stocks. Um, and within that, you'd see things like um, big oil, energy companies more broadly, uh, financials, banks, um, consumer discretionary, retail, travel, leisure, hospitality, they've all come back very strongly. And that's uh, that's that's really been a reason why so-called growth 
uh, you know, managers may have may have struggled a little bit in terms of their performance. But now we're seeing um, some some of these stocks that have benefited from this reopening trade trade at even higher levels than they were prior to the uh, the pandemic. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of money now chasing the return to normal. I mean, my my question would be, how much further can they go? Um, and I think they probably can go a little bit further because there's a lot of optimism around growth momentum. Um, and, and obviously they do benefit because of higher operating leverage from that better growth. But as we go through the year, I'd be a bit more concerned that the, the sugar high euphoria that we're seeing could actually be replaced by um, a little bit more realism that we are still going to be some way away from full um, social mobility. And with that, some of these reopening trades could, could turn a little bit less positive. Right. Okay. Because the, the, the whole question, I, or our, our view as a company, tends to be one of it's, it's not a question of trying to time market, um, because if you focus on the short term very often, uh, you possibly will lose out. Our, most of our clients are going to be invested for the longer term, either to yeah. grow the value of their capital or to supplement income in one way or another. So this talk about, you know, have, have our markets hitting a peak or whatever is... It's not irrelevant, it's important, but it's for the longer term investor, it's not something they should be overly worried about, is it really? No, and I think history tells you that, you know, you need to be invested pretty consistently over the cycle um, and, and leave it up to a, a good quality investment manager to determine how that investment is flexed according to the market environment and the opportunity set. So, for yeah. example, uh, this year has been characterised by a couple of broad themes. One has been obviously high US Treasury yields um, and an outperformance of banks, materials, energy and more cyclical and value plays reflecting the reopening narrative. And the other has been emerging markets in Asia being on the back foot, partly because US Treasury yields rising was, was giving um, some, some, some issues around capital flowing out of these markets back to the US. Of course, you know, with the dollar falling recently and bond yields settling back down again, some of that pressure has gone. Some of it was also to do with a bad outcome in terms of COVID, certainly that affected LATAM. Uh, I think more broadly, there was also the, the growth deceleration that we saw in EM and Asia uh, with some macro prudential tightening in China. All of those have sort of weighed, if you like, on, on that regional allocation. But we see as we get through this year, growth differentials perhaps um, tilting back in favour of EM and Asia. Uh, and that would make us a bit more optimistic through the second half of the year that uh, that type of regional allocation could begin to play catch up. Right. OK, we've, we've touched a little earlier about about sectors and things. One of the one of the big themes that seems to be going through the markets or has been going through investment managers minds over the last 18 months, two years has been this whole thing of ESG, you know, investing for environment, social and, and governance, yeah. etc. Do you think that's changing the way that um, managers view the investments they're making changing their outlook on the market i think it's it's not necessarily changing as as just um further developing it i mean i think any any good investment manager would always had some regard for the non-financial risks that he or she was was, was undertaking when, when making um an investment be it in a direct equity or collective investment with particular reference to the g which seems to align most closely with the financial performance of a particular asset. But I think what's happened is that um, upcoming regulation, which has been put back, the SFDR, certainly acted as a catalyst for investment managers to 
feel pressure to be able to uh, showcase that they have integrated ESG more formally into their way of running money and they can provide clients with a proof statement that, that this is taking place. They can also uh, rate individual holdings and also portfolios more broadly according to these metrics as well. So, so I think we are we are seeing much more focus on, on, on ESG and RI more broadly. One thing that we are mindful of though at Charles Stanley is not necessarily to feel obliged to go too far down to the right in terms of the spectrum of capital because a lot of people out there are branding investments as ethical or sustainable. Uh, we take the view that absolutely, yeah. I mean, there are people out there that, that can demonstrate that they're doing that. A lot of people perhaps can't. Um, and the regulatory environment around ethical and sustainable is, is much, much more onerous. So for the time being, you know, we are very much a responsible investor who is able to integrate ESG, you know, very fully in our approach to building client portfolios. This question of ethics is, is an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, one man's ethics is another man's not so much ethics, is it? And culture plays a big part in that. So if you're dealing with global investors, then um, your approach might be totally contrary in one yeah, to another. Yeah, no, no, that's a great point. And I, I don't think a higher ESG score is necessarily better. I mean, the example I often give is you take uh, Tesla scores single A, um, from an MSCI ESG perspective. So top end of average, maybe a slightly bit above average. And VW scores triple C, you know, reflecting yeah. poor governance around emissions and so on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, last I checked, um, Tesla's trading on something like 400 times next year's earnings. Um, VW's trading on, you know, something like 15. And yeah. VW will actually sell next year, I believe, more EVs than Tesla will. <laughs> So, so, you know, it's as much direction of travel as it is absolute level. So, so you know, I think what it does, um, what ESG does, I think, is it makes the conversation with clients a lot richer. Yes. I think it also makes clients more able, I think, to interrogate how their capital is being deployed by investment managers. But at the same time, it gives investment managers extra tools to, to determine just how much is in the price. Yes. So, you know, it's not just the level, it's the direction of travel. And I'd be pretty certain over the next couple of years that that gap between Tesla and VW would be would be narrowed markedly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with you there, actually, I think, without any shadow of a doubt. If, if, I, if I look at the way things are currently, the way, this is the way I, I see it, John, and I'm yeah. trying to keep it really, really simple in, in the... I, I happen to feel that there are inflationary pressures, but they are more short term than, than medium to longer term. And I think that's a direct consequence of the, of the pandemic. I don't, I don't really see central banks doing much about interest rates for a while to, to, to fight inflation, that it might all just come back to an even keel in maybe two or three years time. And that's, that's when things will really start to happen. Yeah, I, I think that's a great observation. I think, I think the point we need to also bear in mind is that the, the interest rate sensitivity of the global economy um, and financial markets is way, way higher now than it has been at any point in the past. And that reflects, you know, the degree to which governments, corporates, um, you know, to a degree, households as well are, are quite leveraged up. 
So for any given move in interest rates, the impact in terms of economic activity becomes so much greater. So, so I, I very much don't take the view that central banks are going to slam on the brakes. Um, that's not to say that markets won't worry about it periodically. Mm. Um, but as you correctly identify, the data are going to be pretty noisy. You know, we're going to mm. see a lot of, lot of volatile data like we saw on Friday with the US employment report. We might get some inflation numbers that look a bit weird because, you know, they've got to reflect changing preferences. You know, people's baskets, shopping baskets have changed a lot in the last year as well. Mm. Will, the inflation, will the inflation data capture that? Mm. Um, you know, you're going to get yeah. incredibly strong growth numbers, but yes. from a very, very weak base. It, it's yes. going to be very difficult, really, to, to see how all this plays out. Yes. I mean, it sounds to me it's going to be a bit like it, it always has been, that, that um, we will see a de high degree of volatility. Um, but for those that stick with it, we should all be OK in the longer run. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, it's a shame I haven't got a chart I could share with you, but, I, you know, I've got a chart that goes back to pre-Second World War and it has corporate earnings and the S&P 500. And you can see that they both follow a long-term uptrend. And there are times when corporate earnings um, are pretty strong, but the market doesn't reflect it. And there are times when corporate earnings are a bit weaker and the market over-discounts it. But we're not in the kind of 1999 bubble period where there's a big disconnect between corporate earnings and uh, and the S&P um, no. and, and for what it's worth you know we have seen a very strong Q1 corporate earnings season that will probably extend into Q2 as well mm. so there is some fundamental underpinning for markets mm. um, I think I would be more worried if if in six months time we were another 10 or 15 percent higher because I would worry about whether we have entered bubble territory but given my baseline scenario that we're going to get another four, five, six percent on equities, another two or three percent on balanced portfolios, giving reasonably solid full year returns. I think I'm a bit more sanguine. OK, OK. The other thing that and this will be my final question really, yeah. is that last year we heard an awful lot about people not spending their, their money because, of course, furlough and, and working yeah. from home and not being able to go out and do all the rest of it. Um, that has meant that savings have gone up. Um, some of that savings, from what I'm reading, seems to be finding its way into markets, but some of it is clearly finding its way into buying additional goods, etc. How important do you think that is to the to the growing the, the trend in markets? This flow of money been, coming in. Absolutely, it's, that's a great that's a great point. It's be it's been a, a much bigger driver, I think, in the US, where there tends to be a bit more of an equity culture. Yeah, but um, but you're right, and I, I think what's what's interesting is not only do we have something like 180 billion pounds worth of um, involuntary savings built up over the pandemics. That's a lot. There was probably before then around 800 billion plus of cash sitting on the sidelines, um, you know, which hadn't gone into financial markets, uh, you know, just sitting there. Um, so really, you're talking about almost a trillion, which is 50 percent of GDP. And, uh, and I was looking at some uh, some surveys, I think, um, that uh, Equinity put out uh, and something like two thirds of adults putting their savings in cash only. 61% yes. use current accounts for savings. 27% do hold money in investments, but only 10% have stocks and shares ISAs. Yes. So I think we are in a world where despite several years of financial repression and super low rates, you know, for whatever reason, people still don't feel 
comfortable investing um, in markets because they they feel the volatility is 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 going to be a problem for them or they don't understand them. And I think that's at the heart of this conversation is a is a relationship between the investment manager, the advisor, and the client to make sure that sure there will be periods of drawdown, but um, you have to overcome this this risk aversion because unless you do that. You will always do way, way worse by being in cash than, than being invested in markets. Those those statistics you've just quoted there, John, are very interesting because they're very they're very similar to something which the FCA put out um, back in February, where they do a state of the union, if you like, yeah. on financial services. And they did highlight in there that that too many people are holding too much money in cash for far too long. And would have been better served to have been exposed to a even just a balanced managed fund over the last 10 years. Um, and, I, and I wonder how much of that is down to um, a lack of trust, perhaps in the financial services industry from the general buying public. Um, but that's a whole podcast on its own, to be quite honest. Um, but um, John, th this morning has been very interesting. Thank you very, very much for having joined us um, and for sharing your views on how you see things currently. I think that's been very helpful. And I'm sure our clients will very much appreciate it. So thank you very much, John, for that. And um, we'll hopefully we'll speak to you again in the future. And all Great. No, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. Take care. Not a problem. Take care. Our, our grateful thanks to John Cunliffe at Charles Stanley for having joined us this morning for that fairly wide ranging conversation. I hope you all found that of interest and useful and that you'll be able to join us for another In The Know podcast in the future. But for now, goodbye.